David, I've been very fortunate. You know, firstly, one of the lessons I learned very early on, you know, I was very much into the intrinsics of wine, the nose and the glass, reading all those magazines of the day, you know, when Decanter and we used to get Harper's Weekly and that kind of shit. And that was my thing. When I was into airplanes, I knew the specs on all aircraft. I studied aircraft magazines. And, and that's what I did with wine too. I loved wine. I was a real student of wine. But Tim, Tim taught me very early on. He said, Mark, there's no substitute for place on shelf. Uh, it's all about good distribution. Hello and welcome to the XNMO Wine Co. podcast. I am David Clark. XNMO Wine Co. is a wine distributor based in Cape Town. Please go to our website, xanimo.co.za, for more on what we do. The purpose of this podcast is to document the stories in South African wine. We are interested in how we got to where we are today and where we are going tomorrow. Thank you very much for joining us. We are in the middle of a government-enforced lockdown here in South Africa, where the sale and movement of wine is at least for now forbidden. So to keep ourselves busy, we have decided to release a new podcast episode every day during lockdown. We are using the internet to record these podcasts and it doesn't always behave, so apologies for any issues with the audio. I've tried to edit it and make it as listenable as possible. Today on the podcast, we have Mark Kent, the Managing Partner and Technical Director of Buchenhutzkluf in Franschhut. Buchenhutzkluf is one of the huge success stories of the New South Africa. Not only has its own range, but it also has the Wolf Trap, Porcupine Ridge Range and Porcelainburg, and they have a new project in the Yamalan Arda Valley. I would think that virtually everyone interested in South African wine would have had at least some contact with one of these brands in the last 20 years. Mark is a fascinating guy, an original thinker, deeply influenced by the late Tim Rands of Vinnymark, and few people know was one of the original instigators of the Swatland Revolution. By his own admission, Mark is much more interested in the business of wine than farming and making it. This is mainly what I wanted to speak to him about, how Buchanutzkluf got started, how he got involved, and how he expanded the business to where it is today. We also touch on other subjects, like fine wine post-COVID-19, his thoughts on brand South Africa, and his love of Marlborough Sauvignon Blanc. I give you Mark Kent. Hi, I'm here with Mark Kent. Hi, Mark. Hey, morning, David. How are you, man? Are you well? Yeah, all good. All good. Thank you. But um, just for those who don't know you, for the four, 14 people in the world who don't know who you are, uh, maybe just give us a brief rundown. I mean, you were at Elsenburg with, with Chris Williams and Ibn Sadi. Uh, what year did you finish Elsenburg? Yeah, the, the, the two you mentioned and a few others, we finished in December 1994, which was uh, an exciting time in our, in our country's uh, modern history. Yeah, absolutely. When, um, what, what month did, um, did all of the, the big things happen in 94, uh, in terms of uh, politically in South Africa? Yeah, well, obviously it was our first uh, free and democratic election. Yeah. It was exciting times in the wine industry. The wine industry was opening up and we as a, as a young group of uh, naive guys just uh, managed to, to, to travel together at the end of 94. It was a most amazing trip and it was, it was almost... Uh, yeah, it was an acceptance and a welcoming of us, uh, I guess, that people before us probably hadn't enjoyed, particularly in Europe. On that uh, trip, I think Chris was telling us you went to the Rhone Valley and that was where he sort of it blew his mind. Was that a similar story for you? or <laughs> There were many things that blew my mind. but yes, <laughs> <laughs> And not all of them in liquid form, I'm guessing. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Just uh, an evening in Pickwick Tavern, draped in nothing but a South African flag with lots of Olof 
Bech, uh, brandy, which uh, I was not a, a common consumer of. It, it was quite a few things that we could tell that were a lot of fun. Yeah, but seeing people like, uh, you know, <laughs> You can take the boy out of Stellenbosch, but you can't take the Stellenbosch out of the boy. Is that a bit of a situation there? Well, yeah, well, particularly when this, uh, this, this boy came from Warner Beach down in the Tell South Coast, which was yes. very, very much kind of uh, beer and whiskey and cannabis country rather than brandy and fine wine. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I interrupted. No, no, just, uh, yeah, it was, uh, as I said, I was from the Natal South Coast, and which was, uh, yeah, certainly not the home of fine wine. Uh, yeah. So my journey was a very interesting one to land up finally at Elsenburg. Yeah, how did you end up there? Yeah, like many of us, David, I, I uh, landed in the wine industry completely by accident. Uh, all I ever wanted to do was uh, fly airplanes. Uh, we still had, uh, we were still conscripted into the Defence Force uh, as I was nearing the end of my school uh, school life, and uh, I uh, had always wanted to fly airplanes. And I was selected to fly uh, in the South African Air Force. Um, uh, that was to have commenced uh, midway through 1989. I matriculated in, in, in 88. But with a changing political environment in the country, the, the ANC was unbanned, the war in Angola had ended, and they actually suspended the operations at flying school, which was sad. I, I'd spent, uh, there'd been a, quite a rigorous selection process eventually of my intake. I think 10 or 12 of us were drafted for the next pupil pilot intake. And mm. yeah, and it was a frustrating time. I then uh, did my compulsory military service, which while I was in was reduced from two years. I think I eventually did about 15 months. But uh, I'd done my cruciate ligament for the second time and landed up at two military hospital uh, and was posted to the castle guards, which was a bit of a holiday camp. Uh, and anyway, I spent most of, the, most of that 15 months sitting at home in Nurtuk and uh, honing my skills as a diver, particularly for Parliament. But, anyway, right. but we won't talk... <laughs> We, yeah, we, we won't talk too much about that. The, yeah, the, orthopedic, right. <laughs> yeah, the orthopedic surgeon who did my operation liked Palamon as much as I liked diving. And so I eventually, uh, realizing this military thing was not uh, for me, I uh, went back the day before we, we finished national service. And yeah, during that time, I was waiting tables in a restaurant and uh, called the, the Black Marlin outside Millers Point. And uh, anyway, to cut a long story short, uh, they... I uh, met the Finlaysons. I, as a waiter, sold more Glen Carlo Chardonnay, which was then a, a relatively new offering, than any other uh, server, and was invited to go to Glen Carlo. And that's really how my journey started. I spent the day there. And after a day, uh, David, uh, who's still a good friend of mine, David Finlayson, his mum, Jill, said, hey, you know, you've got a real aptitude for this. Why don't you come and pour wine for us at the Good Hope, Good Hope Center, which uh, you've probably never been inside, but that was kind of what the equivalent of what the ICC is today um anyway so i went to a wine show there the next week and then she said one thing led to another and she said well why don't you go to elsenburg and i thought elsenburg i've never even heard of elsenburg anyway i landed up there with with chris and and uh Eben and a few other guys and my journey started it was a hell of an education for me i was uh, one of i think there of the 100 or 120 recruits i think there or intake i think there were about seven or eight of us we were English. And I was very English coming from the Natal South Coast. Um, so, yeah, that was a, it, it was a great experience for me, probably the, the three best years of my life. Sorry, so, sorry so to interrupt you there, Mark. So I th um, some people might not know that, that South Africa is, 
is very dual, uh, well, more than uh, two languages, but certainly in the schooling system, it is Afrikaans and English. So, Elsenberg, your time there was all in Afrikaans, was it? Or did you have the option of English at the time? <laughs> I think English was considered a throat disease there. I yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. But, but, but it, it really was so much fun. In, in my host, hostel, in fact, I was the only English guy and I was with these absolute monsters from Rawsonville and Hex Valley and guys who just became really close friends and still today remain friends. And it was a wonderful time. I mean, it was an interesting uh, uh, time at Elsenburg, uh, the transition that it had to undergo. Um, you know, interesting people coming in from different backgrounds who hadn't had the opportunity before, you know, and it was, it was a wonderful time to be there, I must say. Awesome. Awesome. And so you first yeah. in December 94, went on a trip um, after that and then came back. Yeah. What, what happened on that trip? What was, what was your, what, what were you, what were your plans at that point um, well, after Elsenburg? Well, Did you have plans or I, were you sort of... I yeah, well, part of your undergraduate study at Elsenburg, you need to uh, do a task at a producing farm. And through the owner of the Black Marlin, he knew Jacques Borman at Lamotte. And uh, during my undergraduate diploma, I did my task on Lamotte. And uh, at the same time, uh, Tim Rands and a few mates, John Hunt, Regis Garris, and a couple of other guys had bought this property book. And it's clear of Hans Enderley. And they, uh, Tim knew Jacques and said, Jacques, you know, uh, I, I, would you come and assist us? Would you come and consult for us? And, as luck would have a job, said, hold on, Tim, I've got a guy for you. And uh, Tim phoned me up and I met him in, I think, September 94. Of my, so it was September of my final year. Okay. And uh, went to see Tim Rands in his office in Stellenbosch. No CV, nothing, just had a chat. And uh, he really gave me the job. And uh, that was yeah, well. the start of my journey. Yeah, yeah. It, it, it was kind of crazy. Uh, and yeah, things just walked out, worked out for me. But uh, I went on tour uh, two days before uh, we left uh, to go on this trip. Evan was at my, my family home in Nurtuk with me. He was a keen surfer and I lived on Beach Road in Nurtuk. And we had far too much to drink and then decided to fire up my old XR350R scrambler to go for a run on Nurtuk Beach. As things worked out, we couldn't start. He decided to tow me behind his uh, Friedendal, or not Friedenberg registered KB250 backy. We were both full of, full of juice. I landed up under his car, my knee completely destroyed. Oh. Had to go to the orthopedic surgeon. The guy said, you're not going on any tour. And I said, yeah, I absolutely am. I've got a different opinion, doctor. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Two, two, days, two days later, I was on the plane to, to Europe in crutches. And, and Evan was kind of my... Uh, he was my bellboy the whole trip. He had to carry my bags. And, yeah. <laughs> anyway. yeah, he, he, must, he, he must have felt horrendous. Yeah, fuck, it was a complete nightmare. But anyway, lots of laughs and uh, everybody looked after me. Yeah, it was, it was really a wonderful journey. And then, yeah, then back to Buchanan's Kloof. And also, I arrived in, uh, back at Buchanan's Kloof 1st of December 1994 with a fridge and a hi-fi. Um, while I was abroad, my car had been stolen from my then girlfriend's house, so I didn't have wheels. I had uh, my mate drop me off with a fridge and, a, as I say, a hi-fi, my only worldly uh, possessions. And, yeah, it was just an amazing journey. Tim and these guys had bought this property. Uh, Tim, obviously, it was still early days for Vinimark, and today, uh, you know, it was nothing what it is today, the, the largest privately owned distributor of wine in South Africa. He, him and these guys just 
found this absolutely beautiful property, which was run down after many, uh, many years of disrepair. It remained in the same family from its founding in, in the late uh, 1700s to, I think, the 1980s. And then through inheritance and farms getting smaller uh, and not being able to pay out siblings or whoever, uh, they had to sell the property and then changed hands a couple of times in the 80s and 90s. And before Tim and, Tim and the guys picked it up in, in, in 93. Uh, I arrived there, it was apples and pears, no vines to speak of, an old cellar that had been used uh, for making, uh, you know, uh, in the old days, wine for the, through, through the quota system, made yeah. a little bit of wine for our own consumption and, uh, you know, the, the awful tot system. Yeah, so we, it, it, it was a really very beautiful property, but incredibly run down. And these guys gave me an opportunity uh, Two years later, in, in 1996, uh, crushed the, the first grapes. Eight tons of Cabernet, a, a vineyard next to La Motte, uh, which we still work with today. Our French Cabernet is still made from the exact same vineyard. And so it started eight tons of Cabernet uh, in 1996. And then towards the end of 96, built a, a new winery for the 97 harvest. And it was always kind of, I think the idea of the guys they wanted uh, all been very successful in other disciplines uh, and a really great bunch of guys. And they had an idea, I think, to produce 10, 12,000 cases, say 150,000 bottles. And then we got there in year three and uh, I had a, uh, an appetite uh, to to grow the business. And the guy said, yeah, okay, but not without cash. And yeah, and, and yeah, one thing led to another, lots of opportunities, uh, lots of fun. And yeah, but remembering that the wine industry was a very, very different place back then. I remember, I think the national planting was about 120,000 hectares. There were just under 200 registered producers. And if you consider today's proposition, that well under uh, 100,000 hectares with more than 1,000 registered producers, I think uh, it's a way different uh, place to what it was. Yeah. What was your strategy for expansion there? I mean, you said you wanted to grow it. What was, what were you, in what direction were you, was the plan? Well, I think I'm, my father, my late father was a salesman for a company called Record and Coleman. I spent uh, much of my early years traveling around uh, Zululand and into the old Transca and Epugio 404 with my father selling boot polish and detergents. And uh, okay. I'm essentially a salesman. And <laughs> from, a, from a young age, I was entrepreneurial. I used to have a vegetable van, uh, a vegetable cart, should I say, in Nurtuka. I started the first newspaper round in Nurtuka uh, and it was a great place to grow up and always wanted to sell things and do things and grow things. It, it was a great opportunity. I uh, could see early on that uh, not sustainable at uh, you know 150,000 bottles and uh, yeah I had an appetite to grow and it was a great time to be in the industry there were lots of opportunities I remember standing at that uh, my first Van Expo in 1997 with a cloudy bottle of Sauvignon Blanc that was my only offering I had a table Eddie Holm <laughs> Eddie Holm Eddie Holman had knocked together our first Porcupine Ridge label and there I stood with a cloudy bottle of Sauvignon Blanc in June 1997 you're 20 years too early mate yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> and I mean, these guys must have thought, what do these South Africans think, you know? And uh, it was there that year that I met Richard Kelly too. Uh, we became very close friends and he was a great influence in, in my career. A great guy. He came and joined the Vinimark team and uh, it, it, was a, it really was an interesting time. Buchenhutzkliff is now a, a very established sort of classic name in South African wine, obviously due massively to you. And there was a wine, the 97 Syrah. 
is sort of spoken about in hushed tones and as a, as a, as a sort of a, a, a milestone wine for South Africa. Maybe chat to us about that. That was just, uh, again, just lots of good luck. Uh, you, a guy by the name of Johan Viso, one of the great viticulturists of our country, he was assisting me uh, early on to plant vines. Um, all the plant, vineyards that I planted at Buchanan's Clough uh, in, in the late 90s, we subsequently grubbed up. I did such a poor job. But anyway, uh, he, right. found, uh, he found this eight, uh, eight tons of uh, Syrah for me uh, next to the N1 as you leave Somerset West. Today, it's the site of an industrial park. And I remember at one stage, it was even a big adult world there, which is kind of homage to that great vineyard. But yeah, <laughs> so, uh, okay. it, it was crazy. It was eight tons of Syrah from a really, really old vineyard that at that stage, we're going to Kulunov Co-op, I think. And uh, I, the grapes came in. I said, this is what I want to do. The Rhone was always a reference from me. for me. It was you know, the wines I loved, that same experience that Chris had. And so I uh, fermented this eight tons uh, naturally. I added 20% of the stalks. It was all it was all a bit geeky for the time. You know, this was a time when the reference was those big monsters that you were enjoying out of South Australia, you know, big grippy wines with monster fruit and, and alcohol and lots of vanilla lines from New American Oak. And I went in the other direction, wild ferment, a lot of stalks, and then aged the wine in old wood. And to date, it's still the only wine that I've ever assembled that every barrel landed up in, in the bottle. So, it, yeah, it was, uh, it, it was crazy. I also rather without any, uh, I'm not an analytical winemaker, I never have been, and uh, still today pride ourselves that, you know, uh, we've resisted the temptation to acidify wine and musts, and even in those days, you know, no acidification, it was all, we were saying, hey, you know, this, this is going to be a time bomb, and uh, put that thing in the bottle with a pH of over four, um, and alcohol of around 13, and to tell you today, it's still looking very, very pretty. And that, and, and that was kind of started the journey and there, there was a lot of interest in the wine. I think later, really more so, you know, at the time it was just another Syrah, but quite different to the style it was being produced at the time, yeah. And then sadly, it came to the 98 harvest and uh, there was nothing left. Uh, the vineyard that had been sold to a developer, I scrounged through and got a, uh, a few uh, cases together in 98 and picked it way too late and landed up with a, I think 16 and a half uh, alcohol with about 30 grams of uh, residual. Sounds delicious. Uh, yeah, yeah, it was. <laughs> and uh, David's father, Walter Finlayson, uh, he took it off me for blending into his port. So, yeah, that's where that Okay, perfect. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so kind of half of the legend of that wine is that it was only ever one vintage, which was I see. kind of cool, cool in a way, yeah. How quickly did you move away from the Buchenhutzkliff label? Maybe, maybe talk, talk to us about the sort of the, the branding of, the, of Buchenhutzkliff. And please talk to us about how to pronounce it. I always get it slightly wrong. No, it's Buchenhutzkliff. It's fine. Yeah, so okay. the, the, the historical name of the property was Buchenhutzkliff. When we made a Sauvignon Blanc in 97, we realized that, shit, you know, who, you know who's going to be drinking a, a then 25-rand bottle called Buchenhutzkliff? And then introduced this brand called Porcupine Ridge. There were a lot of porcupine on the property, and uh, there was this come ridge behind the historical homestead and Tim and I were standing up there the one day and there was porcupine quills all over the place and just came up with porcupine ridge and it was quite interesting at the time because you know uh, South Africans very much saw second labels as a as a kind of dumping ground whereas the European mindset was uh, second labels are there to lift the quality of the first one and, and yes. that's what porcupine 
porcupine was, you know. Even in 96, half of that, the, the, that uh, first cabinet went to, to, to Porcupine Ridge. And then we had Porcupine Ridge and, and Book and Oats Clurfus, sort of single cultivar, standalone brands with different positioning. Uh, until the 2002 vintage, where we then, from that vintage in the year 2003, released uh, the Wolf Trap and the Chocolate Block, both, again, at, at different tiers, but then blended ones, which was a, a new proposition from Booking Oats Yeah, and what was, what was the, the thinking behind um, Chocolate Block? I mean, obviously, Porcupine Ridge and, and Wolf Trap are, as you say, sort of a different um, price point, sort of maybe uh, a bit more accessible. And then Chocolate Block... It was quite an expensive one when you first released it, was it not? Yeah, yeah, and uh, that was a that's a it was a wonderful story. I was standing with a guy called Tony Allen, who was then buyer for Oddbins uh, in the UK. Uh, we were at Lord's Cricket Ground. There was a South African generic tasting which we used to host at Lord's for a few years. And uh, Tony, uh, Tony and I were chatting, and he said, "Hey, Mark, won't you do a syrup for for Oddbins and call it the Chocolate Block?" And I said, no, "Tony, you're crazy, man. You know, we don't we don't want to do any own, own label business. Thank you very much." And then uh, after after an expo in 2001, uh, Rudiger who uh, had joined me, Rudiger Gretschel now, who looks after all the production aspects at um, Vinnie Mark, a director there, and looks after Rainy Kawan's crew and a few other things. Rudiger and I uh, traveled down uh, after an expo down to uh, the southern part of the Roussillon uh, into Spain uh, and spent literally two weeks just enjoying what I had to offer. It was very much the time of, of pre-art, uh, we went up to Priorat. We spent some time in the Costa Brava uh, and uh, had very little money, but managed to uh, force our way into El Bulli and have a, 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 an absolutely life-changing experience there. Blew, blew our budget for the two weeks in a single night yes. of extravagance. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, it was crazy. And, and then on that trip was interesting. We, we, we were interested that particularly in the southern part of Russia, into Costa Brava, a lot of the t- typical Syrah Grenache or Ganache combinations, they sort of introduce Cabernet into the wines to give the wines a bit more structure. So along comes the, the next uh, lesser 2002 vintage, and we decide to do something in that style. So we do a Syrah Grenache, uh, add a bit of Cabernet. We also decided to uh, introduce Simso. Uh, we saw Simso then as a, a missed opportunity. Lots of old vines Simso, uh, particularly in Wellington, where we were buying a lot of Syrah fruit from. So we put together this wine uh, with Syrah Grenache, Cabernet, since uh, then included a splash of Viognier. And when we were assembling this wine in 2003, we, we simply didn't know what we were going to do with it, how we were going to position it, and didn't have a name. I recalled this conversation with Tony Allen, so I phoned Tony today. Hey, Tony, remember that name, Chocolate, Chocolate Block? And uh, he said, yes, of course I do. I created it. So I said, well, do you mind if I use it? And he said, no, that, that's hell of a cool. So as long as you give Oddbin's exclusivity on the first vintage, which is what I did, and on the first label it said 2002 vintage, 15 barrels. Obviously, we know that the, <laughs> the volume's growing significantly today. So that was really the start of Chocolate Block, and it was all, all thanks to Tony. And um, it was also uh, in the year, uh, the, the very, very wet 2002 uh, September, I was in... Um, the south of France with my, my dad. It was the only ever time him and I travelled uh, abroad together, and we'd been to see Godfrey. Was then who's now Godfrey Mocker is now working with mm-hmm. me at Bucanotes Clough. He was working at uh, Domaine de Trevignon uh, outside Le Beau in, uh, in Provence, and we were sitting in Saint Remy. And uh, my dad uh, never ever drank wine. He, he dr- drank hell of a lot of beer. But uh, we're sitting there, and I woke up the, the morning after having dinner with Godfrey. And phoned Tim Rands on my Ericsson phone with a sort of 
plastic fold-out aerial and, uh-huh. and phone to him and said, Tim, wolf trap. Wolf trap. He said, what do you mean? So I said, Tim, we need to introduce a wine uh, uh, at an entry-level tier, blended wine. And we had this historical Volvohawk or wolf trap on Bukano. It's Kloof. That's well documented. It was the early settlers were, were losing their livestock. So they, they thought it was uh, wolves. But of course, being uh, there's never been a, a wolf in sub-Saharan Africa. It certainly wasn't one in Bukano. It's no. It was uh, leopard or lynx, both of yeah. which are relatively prolific on the property still today so they built the structure and, and that was where wolf trap came from so yeah just lots of fun things lots of interesting uh, stories but yeah those were kind of how those brands came about and grew into very meaningful brands uh, in both the south african and uh, international context yeah maybe talk about um, strategies for that i mean that's uh, i mean currently in in south africa as you uh, I'm more than aware there's there's a proliferation of, of brands and they're all trying to expand and um, and get into new markets and be more meaningful in those markets. I mean, I look at uh, Book and Hertzcliff as a bit of a, um, a paradigm to how to do that, um, maybe in a slightly different time in a slightly different uh, um, environment and atmosphere. But um, I mean, it's a huge success story. Maybe chat to us about the chocolate block going from 15 barrels to what is it now? 3 billion barrels, something like that? <laughs> yeah, 2,200 odd. Yeah. yeah. You know, David, I've been very fortunate. You know, firstly, one of the lessons I learned very early on, you know, I was very much into the, the intrinsics of wine, the nose and the glass, reading all those magazines of the day, you know, when Decanter and we used to get Harper's Weekly and that kind of shit. And that was my thing. When I was into airplanes, I knew the specs on all aircraft. I studied aircraft magazines. And, and that's what I did with wine too. I loved wine. I was a real student of wine. But Tim, Tim taught me very early on. He said, Mark, there's no substitute for place on shelf. Uh, it's all about good distribution. And, and with that too, even early on, my guys gave me a, a nice budget. I was able to taste and, and drink great wines. You know, you can't make great wine if you don't know what great wine tastes like. And if there's one real shortcoming in the edu- wine education system in South Africa, it's, it's lack of introduction. And, and we just, as students, never saw these wines. And I made it my business. I was spending all the little cash I had on wines. And yeah, I think, so I think we, that's a, sorry, sorry to interrupt, but I think that's a hugely important point to, to focus on in terms of, you know, it's the same with food. You can't cook great food if you don't know what it tastes like, if you don't eat great food. And the same thing with yeah. wine. Exactly right. Yeah. If you, if you can't, <laughs> you can't make wine, great wine if you don't know what it tastes like. It's, it's a really good point. And I'm, dig- I'm digressing a bit, but what I, what I really wanted to drive home here is that my partners never, ever put pressure on me to produce volume or at, at a price point. Nobody ever said, we need to produce X amount of barrels. They always let myself and more latterly uh, our team blend the wines without any, you know, too many wineries, particularly larger ones, are run by SAP. SAP says, this wine costs X, we need to sell it at X. For us, it was never about that. You know, it was all about blending and tasting. And there was no pressure. Some years, volume went down of the premium wines uh, of chocolate block. In some vintages, there's less than produced the previous year or, and the demand. And th- that's been a real privilege for me. And, and that's really the big difference in the success, I believe, at Bukhanoskul. We never had to compromise. It was never, it was never that there was an abundance of money. You know, we had to work hard. I worked three vintages before I could get my second pump because I only wanted a peristaltic pump. You know, so you yep. have to save until we could. And, and those kind of details made all the difference. No acidification, peristaltic, 
only finding the wines with natural free-range egg, egg whites. Today, still, the wolf trap is fined with, with free-range egg whites, you know, at, at more than a million litres. And those kind of small increments, I think, made the difference. And not having financial pressure from my partners. You know, just, just make good wine and, and everything else will come. And so it was with Chocolate Block. You know, whoever thought something called the Chocolate Block would work? An astonishingly good design from Anthony Lane. We think a, a great product, which has morphed into something even more special, you know, with its from 2015 vintage, its origins in the Swatland. Initially, it was Western Cape. I was working with old Grenache vineyards from Ville Marais up at Odum, the vineyard, same vineyard that's now been plundered by a host of other guys. And I was sort of welcomed out of the valley. Right. Go and get your, <laughs> yeah, yeah, go, right. Go, go, go and get your pie at, at Carducci and fuck off back to Franschuk, yeah. Okay. Anyway, after, year, after years of work there, I was kind of unceremoniously told I didn't have access to that fruit, which was, oh. if there's a few things that make you bitter in this industry, it's uh, yeah. the relationship between, between some of us, which is not great. It was a uh, chocolate block. It's just been this amazing success. But again, it was about distribution. You know, today we, we're selling wine in about 60 markets worldwide. Yeah. Got an inc- incredible team. And uh, yeah, it's all about... You know, from, it, it may sound a bit naff, but we like to say that the quality lies in the second half of the bottle. We, we've never openly entered shows or competitions. You know, sometimes our, our importers put us up for a gong here or there, particular commercial level. But it's, it's very much been the strategy that we, we're gonna, we built this business on good third-party endorsement and great distribution having good place on shelf. And that's why I'm in Amsterdam today, you know, uh, who would have thought the world would be in this mess, but I moved to Amsterdam in um, December last year. Our business is mature. I've got really great people that are, are working with me, Godfrey and uh, Johan and, and Heinrich, our team of winemakers, Kali at Porcelainburg. And yeah, and I just decided that the opportunities for us for growth in South Africa were limited. So I was going to spend a year, which coincides with my in December, I had celebrated 25 years at Buchanan's Cliff, so a bit of a sabbatical. I came over here to try and grow our business. So now I'm holed up in Amsterdam, but, <laughs> <laughs> but there could be worse places to be. Yeah, yeah. yeah there, there, is a, there is a link to um, you know, the southern Natal coast and, and Amsterdam in their, uh, yeah. in their pastimes, I guess. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I'm missing my little tunnel back in France. You've recently installed a new cellar at uh, at home base in Franschhoek. And obviously, you've mentioned Gottfried a couple of times, who sort of was most recently at Chamonix, also in, in, in Franschhoek. I have huge respect for, for Gottfried. Uh, maybe talk to us about the transition away from you as the winemaker to you as the sort of the business strategist and, and, and executive officer. Yeah, I think uh, it was never a transition. I was always going to be the, the sales guy that I just happened to love wine. But... As the business grew, and I think I saw Rudiger's frustration with me, you know, I regard Rudiger and, and Godfrey both as very technical, brilliant uh, winemakers, as well as intellectually very, very, very smart people. They're intelligent guys. And yeah, very, very engaging, aren't they? Was, yeah, but just smart, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> understand more than just wine. They, 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 they're big picture guys. And, you know, I had this kind of laissez-faire approach to, to winemaking, uh, pretty much uh, the, the, the style that I've managed the business over the 25 years to, to a lot of uh, frustration from my partners that there wasn't a bit more structure. But I think that's what's really allowed us to grow is that, that, that kind of allowing us the growth, uh, the opportunity to make mistakes and learn from them, but ultimately just make the right decision for wine, not for the income statement. And then Godfrey, yeah, Godfrey somebody I, I'd known since he joined uh, Chamonix and 
I tried over the years to get him to come and join our team. Just a real under the radar kind of guy, just completely in love with wine. He, he loves wine, but he also understands it. And my limitations uh, as a business that, you know, when you, when you were kind of crushing 20 or 30 tons in, 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 in the late nineties, you know, you could, uh, it was one thing, but now being responsible for a business that's uh, crushing thousands of tons, uh, we needed a bit more structure, a bit more discipline, a, a bit more of an analytical approach, if I can say that. Somebody was a, a bit more considered in the in the, the decisions. Yeah, and it was a good fit, you know. He's, he's, he's a really amazing guy. And it's what, and it's what really freed me up to, to spend this time abroad now that I, I don't have to worry that, you know, the guys are, as, as, as we speak now, the guys are currying samples across here uh, from day one uh, I may not be dragging pipes in the winery anymore but I still blend every single wine uh, throughout our our range including uh, Kelly's wines you know with Kelly the Cap Maritime brand Porcupine Wolf Trap Brookenhouse Club Chocolate Block I'm still sign off on every single wine that we bottle and I pride myself on that you know it's what I like to do I think again back to that thing about you you can't make great wine if you know what great wine tastes like and I think in South Africa we, we've got real cellar pellets you know, we, we, we kind of confined to the, the, the boundaries of our own cellars and if we're lucky regions. Um, I, I still enjoy that. So samples get couriered over, I blend with the guys. Uh, we'll be doing our Sauvignon Blanc blending on Zoom next week. <laughs> yeah, it's going to be quite, <laughs> quite an experience. <laughs> yeah. um, I think that, um, you know, the, the, the cellar palette um, or regional palette um, is getting better in South Africa though. It's certainly better than when I first came here in, in 07 and when I came um, for the Cape Wine in 2007 and, 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 and saw a few uh, guys out there. There was guys who didn't really know what part of Burgundy Chablis was or that Chablis was part yeah. of Burgundy. And these were, Chardonnay, these were Chardonnay producers. But I think that's changed a lot in the last sort of five, 10 years. Would you say it's going in the right direction? Obviously it's not... Um, where it should be, I guess, if, if, if we look at it that way, but it's certainly on, on the up. Absolutely. No, I, uh, yeah, uh, my, my comment is a bit dated, but it's more of a frustration of what's still manifests in the industry. Uh, I'm still so surprised when I see winemakers arriving at dinner parties or, or sitting in restaurants drinking their own wine. You know, I've just, I've just <laughs> never, ever understood that. And and it's not it's not just the older generation, you know. The guys uh, maybe it's a financial consideration. I don't know, but I'm always surprised. It reminds me of those cigarette reps smoking those Stuyvesants, you know, when we're in Stellenbosch. So have a fucking Stuyvesant and come to the party, you know, kind of thing, you know. And it's like, hey man, you know, the world's much bigger, you know. Yeah. Well, maybe it was a brand. Maybe it was a branding exercise. Them drinking yeah, their own wine, you know. That, that's the, that's the thinking. A, yeah, we need more Ryans of this world, you know. We need more Ryans with their generosity, with their with their spirit. And I mean, oh, yeah. Anyway, uh, more yeah. Ryans. And I remember an early Chris Mullineau when Chris was a student at Stellenbosch, yeah. coming with the Stellenbosch University Tasting Group, and you could just see, hey, this guy's going to be a star, you know. He just he was thinking big. He loved wine, and hey, and had amazing humility. But he was just so interested in wine. And yeah. Uh, and then yeah, and then kind of Ryan the wine geek and a few others. Yeah, mm. they, they, no, I, I mustn't generalise, but yeah. I guess you guess what I'm what I'm saying. Yeah. No, no, I, I absolutely agree. And I, I I came across the exact same sort of feeling when I first got here, but I think it's changed not totally. I mean, there's still a massive um, space for improvement yeah. in that regard. But I, I, I'm certainly. I mean, I know Godfrey drinks a lot of um, international booze and and is very curious. But I think, as you say, that's a sort of what separated him away from a lot of the other guys at the time. 
Yeah, yeah, sure, absolutely. Yeah. You mentioned Kali in the, the Porsche Landberg um, project. I mean, I'm a, I, I put that in the sort of the one of the top three producers in South Africa. I mean, I'm, I just love the wine, I uh, love the project. I wish I could get involved more, but apart from just being a drinker. But tell me about how that came about and, and the setup there. Because it's, it's slightly different to, I mean, the, it's a very different project than, say, Chocolate Block or Wolf Trap or Porcupine Ridge. Yeah, so it was the year 2009, uh, early in the year, uh, month or two before harvest, or sorry, it was probably late 2008. Um, I, I was uh, involved um, through Tim's involvement, Marks' involvement in Rainica. I was uh, assisting um, Johan Rainica and Rudiger was uh, helping and was trying to find some organic grapes for, uh, for Rainica, actually. And uh, anyway, stumbled across this vineyard Rudiger found that uh, called uh, Porcelain, went to meet this guy and wanted to see if he had any grapes for sale. And then this guy said to me, he said, no, you know, his name was Yaku. He said, I've got eight tons of, of Syrah. And I knew the vineyard because Eben was then buying the fruit for his Columella and his early vintages were from this site. Um, he, and so I said, well, geez, you know, we're not exactly running a, a corner store. Eight tons is not really going to do it for me. He said, no, 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 but Audi takes a bit. Eben takes a bit. I like to make a bit of wine. And I landed up, I don't know, I think it was about a ton uh, of grapes. And I, I made a little bit of Syrah. And then it came to paying for the grapes in May or June of that year. And this guy, Yaku, phoned and said, you know what, um, he's having some difficulty. Would we like to perhaps purchase the, the property that was then called uh, Um And uh, I spoke to Tim and it was a real limitation in our business. You know, we, we, we had no uh, security in our supply. We didn't own vineyards and it was largely due to my limitations I, as, I, as I mentioned earlier you know I was a particularly poor farmer anyway the time was right we were in a bit better position financially and decided that hey we should start owning vineyards anyway we decided to purchase this property and then uh, while the, the process the transaction this was 2009 and while the process was happening I was in London in one of these uh, beautiful guild halls doing a tasting for it was swig with with damon uh, wow. and the guys and uh, next to me was this this fella called Kalilo, who was then working for tilbach mountain vineyards uh, i became fascinated over the course of the evening with this guy you know if i think Kali would have had more pleasure lying in a dentist chair than <laughs> than then standing there trying to sell wine, you know. Yeah. And anyway, I enjoyed engaging him. He was kind of, he's uh, not that much younger than me, but I really see him as a different generation and uh, mm. really different. And I enjoyed uh, also incredibly uh, smart guy and quite, quite a thinker. And I enjoyed my evening chatting to this guy. It was a welcome distraction. While I like selling, you can only do so much of it. And anyway, then a month or two later, we, the, the transaction was concluded. And I thought, geez, who's going to farm this place? I'm certainly not going to. So I phoned Cully and said, geez, Cully, it's Mark. You remember me? And anyway, he, he came and had a beer and he said, I want the job. And, and that was it. You know, Cully uh, joined us in, in 2009 and uh, made his first porcelain work in, in 2010. And uh, yeah, the rest is, is just been an, an, another incredible journey in my personal life, but also in, in, in the journey of our business. We, we recognized that we needed to own our own fruit. And it was never about developing this, this brand Porcelainburg. It was yeah. about a, a good, reliable source of fruit for primarily chocolate block and more latterly for the, for the Bucanotes Kloofsera. 
Yeah, so that was that was just correct, and you know that's somebody how, else. How did how did you go from a rationale of fruit security to producing a, a single site syrah on the on the extreme limitations of where grapes will will thrive in South Africa? Well, a couple of a couple of things happened at the same time. Neil Beckett, uh, in the early days of World World of Fine Wine, had visited South Africa, and he'd written about this vineyard. I think it was documented that his the finest syrah he tasted on that trip was from this property called Schooner Hill. And bizarre, you know. And so a few things kind of pointed in that direction. You know, obviously, even using it for his first few vintages of Columella was endorsement enough. Um, so, yeah, and then just Kelly and his whole approach, you know, that guy is, is just been a, a lesson for a lot of us in our business and should be in the industry. I've never met somebody so dedicated, so hardworking. Okay, as you can probably imagine, he's not uh, going to be the easiest guy in the world to manage. But in our business, as I say, our, our style is quite laissez-faire. Everybody does their own thing. Everybody's mm. autonomous. Everybody, And nobody ever said, Kelly, you need to do this. Kelly's made the wine that he thinks as a vigneron. Uh, expresses that that specific site and and he's done nothing but miracles you know it's uh, from day one it's the wine's been so well received and it's great you know while i say i'm involved in the blending it's really his courtesy uh, i'm sure i'm convinced that when i'm finished blending he does what he wants anyway that actually sounds that, that sounds a bit right doesn't it to be fair <laughs> yeah but you know and, and, and but at least he humors me you know and uh, and, and, and and i really appreciate that for me that's uh, it's just great to be involved and to have watched that morph into what it is you know from finding the printing press and the detail that's the kind of soft stuff that i enjoy and just having i mean how could you wish for somebody uh, more in touch with the land than kelly it's been a it's been a great uh, part of my journey i must say yeah no he does seem like a little bit of the odd man out in the the book and hutzcliff uh, family but obviously that helps um that makes that makes the team stronger rather than weaker yeah, we're all very different personalities, you know, uh, Godfrey and you don't know other, but I've got a couple of winemakers who've been 10, 15 years with us who really just get up every morning and live our business, which which is great. And, and you know, never going to get the shine that Kelly does, but they do as important a job, you know, for me, yeah. producing whatever volumes we do, Wolf Trap and, and chocolate, chocolate Block and, and Porcupine Ridge. That, that's the real skill. You know, uh, Kelly, uh, with all respect to him, producing you know, 15, 20,000 bottles, that is one thing. But when you can knock out over a million bottles, Porcupine Ridge, Syrah, that quality, and Chocolate Block with its volumes, that for me, uh, I think, distinguishes us rather than these five barrels of journeyman or, or, or porcelain or whatever. Yeah, I mean that's a perfect segue because what I wanted, wanted to chat to you next was sort of brand South Africa in in the world market. I had Christian on uh, the podcast a while ago, and he said that one of the things that he was wanting to see in the in the marketplace was a sort of a, a global South African brand to really lead the charge and be the pointy end of telling the South African story in different markets around the world. So almost like a like a Penfolds or a or a Torres from Spain or a Catena from from Argentina. I was maybe talking about sort of like a maybe a Gigal Cote d'Arone style wine that, you know, that's almost sort of ubiquitous in, in the market, but it's very particular to that area and that, and that place in the world. And then uh, Wolf Trap and Porcupine Ridge got, both got uh, mentioned by Richard Kelly when we were discussing it also. Is that a, a horizon goal for you to, to get those two brands into that sort of um, stratosphere of, of world brands and, and, and world awareness? Yeah, I think uh, South Africa is, is desperately 
missing. You know, we, we don't have any uh, as much as the cadets and the classiques and the chocolate blocks for that matter. We, we still don't have the scale. Yes. South Africa, for me, sadly, is still not seen as a consistent, reliable producer of quality wine globally. You know, their, their pockets, the UK, obviously, we've got acceptance in that. But a lot of it, do, uh, our image is still way behind Australia or, or, or for California, for that matter. And I don't think it necessarily needs to be. Uh, but I think a lot of it is, is, is our own doing. You know, sadly, as South Africans, we, we really struggle to, to celebrate our champions. You know, it's, um, I hear more bad-mouthing of chocolate block domestically than I do all across the world. It, it, it's sad for me that we can't just say, hey, you know, let's, let's get behind our brands. You, know? you, need, you, need, new, you, you need new friends then, Mark, if, uh, if you're talking to people <laughs> bagging your wine. You just, just, just hang out with some different people, mate. <laughs> yeah, but, but I've learned it along the way, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We, 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 you know, we need to celebrate our champions. South Africa needs those big brands to to really... Uh, but having said that, you know, David Sardi was one of the first guys to phone me and say, Mark, you know, I really think it's great that Chocolate Block is now one of origin Swatland. And that meant a lot to me, you know. It said, fuck, here's a guy who's a, who's a big thinker. But uh, it, it saddens me that we can't celebrate our success. I, you know, I firmly believe that if you're making good wine or great wine, the, the market's big enough for everybody, David, you know. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, just stick to the quality. Yeah, the, 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 the rest will come. Yeah. And then what was it? I mean, obviously, they're, they're critically underfunded. Have they been assistance to you? Do you operate sort of in parallel uh, in the same spaces, but not necessarily in coordination with them? How does that work in, in, in markets uh, overseas? Obviously, they're focusing on specific markets, not necessarily just exports per se. No, I work very closely with them. You know, as, as, as in most things in life, you know, you gravitate to where you've got friendships or relationships. So, for example, Laurel, at, uh, who runs Woes in Canada, I'm close to, we've been uh, friendly. And so whenever she hollers and says, hey, Mark, I need you to come and present this or do this, uh, I'll go and do it. Uh, uh, done similar things in London, the first cultivar tastings, 15, 16 years ago, there were series cultivar tastings that we did uh, at Africa House and other venues. I've done those for was a lot of work in Sweden. Uh, yeah, just wherever I can. I think, yeah, sadly, was it's terribly uh, underfunded. I remember um, it's it's a wonderful story. I was sitting on a uh, on a plane once next to Proven Gordon in his first stint as finance minister, mm. and then. Anyway, the, the evening, uh, he, he was hell of a friendly and chatty. And, uh, you know, I, I had one too many, whatever we were drinking in those days on the plane. And uh, I don't know, I, I flew so much that I managed to get upgraded to business. Uh, I was spending then three, four months a year abroad. So, you know, uh, so I landed up next to him and I said, you know, uh, Mr. Gordon, you know, you're particularly severe. I, obviously, I've got some courage from the, what I've been drinking. <laughs> I said, it is, you know, your excise and that is terribly severe and we all understand syntax. But, you know, our big disadvantage is that other new world producing countries or any wine producing country for that matter, a lot of those taxes are going back into the industry. I mean, you look at Australia and what they've done at then Rosewood and our University of South Australia or or what they do in California, or there's so much funding going into wine and viticulture at grassroots level uh, and support from government. And uh, we sadly were lacking in that. And I think that's obviously the case. And, and Woza is, is, is a typical example there. Those guys are underfunded. They do an amazing job on a shoestring budget for us. And yes, I, I think they're, they're great. I think they, they're often the whipping boy. People take their frustrations out on them. Uh, but they try hard, you know, uh, they, they, they get out of bed every morning and, and try hard for us. And uh, I can do nothing but give them praise, frankly.
And uh, what was uh, Minister Gordon's response to you? Ah, you know, yeah, I guess you know, <laughs> <laughs> he probably had this kind, of, this kind of shit every other day. So. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But anyway, but yeah. Yeah, yeah, but you know what? I kind of work, do do it when I can and when I can help, and I, I love doing it. You know, I love talking South Africa. I love talking Franchuk. I love talking, you know, our business, but more. Mm. More so, our industry, it's been good to me. You know, the industry has been very, very good to me. I like to, to do something back. And talking about big picture thinking, what can producers within South Africa do to, to help the image get changed about South African wine and, and South African fine wine? What, what do you think that uh, the average producer can do? Or is it, is it a team effort? Yeah, I think just support each other, you know, just just give each other support and, and enjoy the reflected glory that some guys may enjoy. You know, it's good for all of us. When Evans global, you know, international master of wine, winemakers, winemaker of the year, and the Moulinous, Andrea gets with wine enthusiast, winemaker of the year, just celebrate it, you know, just say, wow, look, look at this. You know, we've got these people, we've got these wines, you know, we've got all these accolades and, and we just need to really just, again support our champions you know there's there's a lot of good stuff going on you think of things like uh, swatland revolution you know that was just so good and why did it work because there were a couple of like-minded guys who wa- wanted to have some fun didn't take it so seriously but really just got stuck in you know put in a lot of energy for a collective you know you may say oh, it was the four brands involved it was uh, an ego trip for them but it wasn't that was good for the swatland and it was good for the South African industry. It was good to see this, this working together. And that for me, also one of the highlights of my journey, being involved in that little initiative. It was mm. really just so much fun. Yeah, I spoke to Chris and, and Andrea about um, how that came about oh, about a year ago, I think. Um, that's on the podcast as well, if people want to go back and listen to that. So it's a super interesting yeah. story. And the fact that it's no longer now, it, it remains sort of a, maybe a little bit of a vacuum in the domestic market and a, and a bit of a centerpiece for, for wine importers, South African importers, to come and visit South Africa. Now they have to either come and organise their own trip <laughs> or have to wait every three years for a, for a Cape wine. Yeah, I think uh, there, you know, I think it had run its course, the, the kind of run out of energy and uh, it was becoming a bit of a cut and paste uh, job. And uh, yeah, I mean, I don't mean that unkindly, but you know, the guys mm. working hard and you know, everybody's really, particularly as economic times got tough and needed to focus on their business. I mean, Andrea and Chris, Ivan, Adi, everybody, Cornelia, Kelly, they put a lot of time into that, you know, and uh, mm. yeah, it was, it was hard to replicate year after year. What has happened is all these little uh, offshoots, you know, businesses like yourselves uh, uh, and uh, some of the other guys who are just choosing a handful of fine wines and doing your bit for it. You know, we need that. You know, uh, it's a pity that we almost need to have you guys on an international uh, footprint being our ambassadors. But yeah, it's it's just not that easy. There costs involved in it. But yeah, it's amazing. You know, I look at uh, how many smaller producers kind of fed off that. The, the revolution and how they how they've prospered subsequently i mean it hasn't all been easy but there's a, a lot of really exciting if i can without being disrespectful to them disciples of, of yemen and the Mulunus and trying to replicate what they've done in in many ways yeah i mean i don't think it's the only sort of inspiration people drew but it certainly was a, a huge focal no, point no. and i'm talking to i'm actually chatting to Ivan uh, this evening um recording okay. a chat with him so and talking him a similar story to you in terms of how he started Saudi family and Colin Allen and all that sort of stuff as well. So um, it'll be good to get his um, his perspective on that as well. 
Yeah, well, you know, he's, a, uh, he's, he's very unique. And that's one thing. We, South Africans lack these personalities. You know, we had, uh, sadly, the generation before us didn't have the opportunities that, that, that we've had. You know, can you imagine letting Bayers and Kevin Arnold, uh, you know, uh, 30 years ago, loose on the international trade, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah the, the, and we, we <laughs> those, are the, those were the guys that I admired, you know, those were, were kind of the guys that I looked up to and said, yeah, yeah, I want to be a member of the guild and I want to do this just like those guys, you know? Yeah, we're lucky to have the Evans and the Ardies. We need more of them, you know? We need these personalities. They're the ones that can really wave the flag for us as, as well as just the bottle, you know? It's, it's, uh, it's, it's important. No, I think I think Artie's Secateurs brand, for example, could be and is already to a small degree a, a way into South African to South African wine for, for a lot of markets because it is unique, unreplicable, affordable and delicious. I'm just not sure if the scale's there at the moment. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, if anybody already can do it, you know, he, I've, I've been on trips uh, across Canada or in Norway, wherever, where you're a couple of weeks behind Adi. And I tell you, people talk to you like Adi's their best mate. He's got this incredible ability to to win people over and, and to and he, and he sells South Africa so well. I wish we could, uh, I've said to Eben too, the two of them just should spend their, their time on the road. But sadly, they've got businesses to look after. But yeah, oh, and, yeah, and, fam- and, and families to, uh, to attend to as well. You know, that's <laughs> yeah, not that easy. Yeah, yeah. Sadly, um, there's a lot of wine widows out there, yeah. Talking about that, I mean, I was talking to some of the guys I look after domestically. And as you say, they're uh, at the fine wine end, mostly they're relatively small producers and they have to travel quite a lot to sell all their wine every year. And do you think they'll have to do that in perpetuity? David, after what we're experiencing now, uh, I think the fine wine market is going to change a hell of a lot. Firstly, yeah. most, you know, if, uh, just thinking where I'm in, in, uh, in Amsterdam and spending, I spend a lot of time in Belgium and Antwerp just looking at wine lists. You know, there's not a list that doesn't have a wine of, uh, you know, I'm talking sort of one star and up. There's not a list that doesn't have a wine from Eben or the Muller News or Ardi on it, you know. And these are the segments of the market that are really, really going to struggle now. So I hope it comes back. I hope that it comes back quickly. But uh, it's a very, very difficult uh, segment. But it shows you what a great job these guys have been doing, you know, along with the likes of uh, David and Nadia. It's, it's hard work. It's, it's expensive. Clearly, they've been doing a great job because their, their wines are, are, are well uh, represented. Are you going to be a lifer at Buchanan-Sklerf or are you sort of, uh, what's, your, what's your retirement plan? Have you got one? Phew, whatever plan I had, uh, uh, David, uh, has been now been thrown back about five years. Yeah, I've got my, you know, I've got my own goals and my own dreams, and I'd like to spend a bit more time in Europe. It's, it's been good. This this experience was going really well. You know, Hamburg on Monday, Zurich on Wednesday, kind of thing. London on Friday until it all came to a grinding halt. I've got a, a real love for Europe, uh, Southern Europe particularly, and yeah. So let's see where that goes eventually. But uh, mm-hmm. at the moment, I'm turning 50 this year, so it's another milestone. But I. Uh, I still got uh, a lot of petrol in the tank. <laughs> yeah, uh, but looking at Cliffs, it's a business I know, I love, and I understand. So, and I still think I can still I still got a lot to do. Cool, man. Um, just before we go, and again, thank you for your time. Maybe chat to us about what wines you're excited by at the moment, both domestically within South Africa and internationally. What are you What are you buying and drinking at the moment? Sure. Well, it's it, it's nothing it's nothing new for me, but. Mm-hmm. Uh, Whenever I have the opportunity, I love drinking uh, wines from uh, Piemonte. Uh, mm-hmm. These are it's uh, I love 
people who know me are well aware I've spent a lot of time in, in Portugal. Uh, the Portuguese wines, uh, the Douro, particularly uh, the dry wines of the Douro, uh, are, are amazing for me. That's what uh, probably my wines of choice for affordability. If I could afford to drink what I want to drink, it's probably <laughs> Crepe Perotas or Barbarescos. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, but you know what? Uh, if you ask me what I'm drinking here, I still uh, mustn't say it too loud, but I still sneak off to the local bottle shop and get an anxious bottle of Marlborough Sauvignon. I'm really, I'm still a sucker for a really nice Sauvignon. Uh, I, I love anxious wines uh, over here. It's obviously fantastic to to have the opportunity to drink. Uh, uh, I was drinking a, a, a fantastic Gamay last night. Um, Drinking some uh, interesting wines out of Italy that that uh, you know are new to me. I've never been a real southern Italian. I haven't had the opportunity, should I say? Uh, I've always focused on Piemont and things. Spain has always been fascinating for me, but yeah, drink. The beautiful thing here is being in Europe now. It's sort of 10, 15 euros. You can drink a really nice bottle from any region in the world that you want. You know, yeah. so I, I don't I don't limit myself. And back home. Uh, I buy the same wines every year, you know, from uh, Chris Arlite. I still buy a Talima cab, a Lariche cab every year. That's what I have in my cellar at home. Obviously, Eben Hardy, the Moulinies, the usual suspects. But, yeah, just enjoying watching people like uh, Jocelyn Hogan, what she's doing, and uh, Van Lochrenberg. You know, these are all, uh, it's, it's just it's so much good wine. You know, it's now just, uh, sadly, you sit and I'm looking back and saying, Jesus, I've got so much wine, of so much cartology. Why did I buy all of that? You know? <laughs> and now you've got multiple vintages that you've got to drink. But anyway, the wines are, yeah. It's, it's, so not, the, it's not the worst problem to have, Mark. <laughs> no, 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 it isn't. But you know, you, yeah. you, you don't want to. You don't want to land up having the biggest cellar in the graveyard. That's for sure. No, that's true. Yeah. That's very true. Yeah. yeah. Cool, Mark. Thank you very much for your time. I really appreciate it. It's been a, a real pleasure speaking to you today. Yeah. Cool. Take care. Thanks, Dave.